Welcome to the Growing With Purpose podcast. I'm Paul Spiegelman, and we're going behind the scenes with very special leaders, learning about what shaped them into who they are in business and in life. Today's episode comes from Ruby Receptionists. Ruby's live remote receptionists and proprietary technology are your solution to delivering excellent customer service experiences by answering live calls in English or Spanish, transferring calls, taking messages, addressing common questions, or making outbound calls for you. Most importantly, they sound like they're sitting in your office. To learn more, visit callruby.com or better yet, call us at 855 255 Ruby. My guest today is Megan Driscoll. Megan is the founder and CEO of Pharmalogics Recruiting, a global human capital organization established in 2003. Megan started as a traditional contingency recruiting firm, but came up with a completely new business model after the recession of 2008-2009. She's a staunch supporter of female leadership in companies and has built an award-winning, award-winning organization. Welcome, Megan. Thanks for having me. Well, it's just great to have you on and and hear uh, about how you've really upended this uh, pretty traditional industry of recruiting. But uh, talk first about the company, uh, Pharmalogics, what you do, and how you got started. Yeah, I'm happy to. Um, we are a 90-person global recruitment firm. We focus exclusively in life science. Um, we're really mission-driven in that we are interested in, in placing candidates at companies that improve and save lives. So we're often asked, why don't you apply your model? to a different industry, and I would go back to them and say that's not part of our, our mission. We, we want to be connected to um, organizations that are, um, that are looking to sort of change the world in that way. And that's, you know, <clears throat> there are a lot of different things that you can sell in this world, and it feels good to sell something to somebody that you know ultimately um, can can make someone else's life that much better, you know, and we work really closely with companies that are novel, um, developing novel, um, what I would call sort of like orphan disease drugs, um, on products that no one else is working on. Um, we do a lot of work with Novartis in their uh, leukemia space. Um, so a lot of, um, uh, sort of cell therapies uh, that are brand new on the market. Um, a lot of our scientists that we place work in that space. So we're doing some really cutting edge work, which makes um, it adds a little life and flavor to just sort of like what I would consider boring recruiting. <laughs> well, how did you end up in life sciences? I fell into it actually, sort of luckily. Um, I was uh, sort of really young. I had just sort of been out of college only a year when I heard about the organization that I originally joined, my first recruitment firm that I joined, um, was in was working in life sciences. And at the time, actually, I was considering going back to, to medical school. I did really want to be a doctor. I was playing with that. Um, and so I decided to do this maybe for a year while I sort of figured out whether or not I wanted to start taking classes. And I needed to, like, bulk up on biology and some other things if I wanted to go back. And what I found was within the first year of recruiting at this firm that I was really good at sales, so that sort of came nationally, naturally to me, and recruitment is a form of sales. You're selling a person um, to a company, and the person can tell you it doesn't want to go, unfortunately, but um, that does happen. Um, and I found that that was really natural, but I also found very connected to the industry. So it was feeding that interest in science that I had, um, and so I ended up obviously not, not going to medical school and pursuing um, recruitment as a full-time career uh, and business. 
it seems to be a common refrain uh, for a lot of people. Uh, I was the, that wannabe doctor too, uh, and uh, never quite made it, and ended up in in a healthcare in the healthcare industry as well. So we got close uh, in a different way, which is really interesting. Now, what made you actually start the business, moving from working in the business? Yeah, so it was, um, again, I, I think, you know, what's sort of or transpired over the course of my life has been opportunities, doors opening to me, and me sort of deciding to go through them, um, and lots of luck along the way, I would say. Uh, one of my clients who had helped me, or, or had hired people from me, uh, was a design-build firm. They they built bricks and mortars, uh, biopharmaceutical facilities, they're a construction engineering firm. And uh, they approached me and said, gosh, you're doing such a great job filling all of our roles, um, you know, we're building these facilities you're placing people within them, is there an opportunity where we could help you? We'd like to help you start your own recruiting company. Um, I did not compete at the time, so I kind of said I really couldn't go directly into doing that. Um, So they made me sort of an offer I could never have refused. They made me a director of business development, selling design build services for them, um, while I sort of agree, you know, uh, I'm sort of a, if you sign your name to something, you agree to it. So I sort of lived out my non-compete and and did not compete for the first year. I sold design build services in an industry I knew nothing about. Um, but it was actually a, quite a good learning experience. And then after my year uh, non-compete was up, I started Pharmalogics. They gave me an interest-free loan, free rent, the ability to um, use their human resources department. They were a $150 million design build firm at the time. So um, they had resources that I could benefit from, and they allowed me to use them for free in return for some ownership. So that's kind of how Pharmalogics started. Wow, that's a, an incredible opportunity that they gave you. You took advantage of it and have built it now into a 90-person firm, a multi-million dollar company. Uh, I know that you really kind of hit a wall or a big challenge uh, around the recession that changed your business model, the more traditional contingency fee uh, situation that uh, most recruiting firms work with. What, What happened back then and how did you react? Yeah, I um, I never really liked the the I never really liked the traditional approach. The traditional recruitment rep- approach is you get paid if the candidate makes a hundred thousand dollars, you get paid twenty five thousand dollars to place the person. But ultimately, re- you're really working for free unless you make that placement. Um, and often it requires that you work around a human resources or talent organization internally. So you're selling your candidates into hiring managers and trying to avoid the HR sort of stumbling block the whole time. So it does set up sort of a contentious relationship between human resources and recruiters when really you should be partnering to place great talent. It's sort of like an oxymoron. It really shouldn't happen that way, but it does um, in the contingency world because they see you as a threat, you see them as a threat. Um, So I never really appreciated that about the industry. That was the way it it was, um, but I never really enjoyed that. I also felt that um, I I really struggled to find people that I felt were really customer service oriented um, because the people that were really great at recruitment were really strong salespeople. And strong salespeople have very strong personalities. um, And I think that's kind of where recruitment gets a sort of used car salesman um, uh, uh, reputation. Yeah, reputation, unfortunately. Um, So I wasn't quite really happy, I would say, with with the recruitment approach we had been taking for our first few years. It was sort of the way it had always been done. I didn't know any other way, but knew that I didn't really appreciate or like it. Um, So in 2008, um, I, you know, was concerned that we might go out of business, quite frankly. A lot of my 
uh, peer companies that had started around the time I had started in other industries were going out of business. Uh, we were certainly downsizing. We had maybe grown to about 12 people in 2006, 2007. And by 2008, we were down to like four or five. And I was concerned. I thought we would go even lower. I was hoping we would just keep the lights on, really. But an interesting thing happened where I read an article. I think it was either in Inc. Magazine or Entrepreneur Magazine. Um, but it was based on a comment that Steve Jobs once made, which was, in a recession, cannibalize yourself. And so the article was sort of explaining what Steve had meant by that, which was just that in, an op- in, a, in a recessionary period, it's the only time where your operational expenses are so low, you can afford to do something really crazy. And if it doesn't work, you can always go back to what you knew. So I decided to really think on that and uh, crunch some numbers and figure out um, whether or not there was space for us to offer something that would be lower cost, that would be more collaborative, um, and uh, and still keep the essence of what it was that we were doing, which was to you know provide top talent to these companies that we were working with. So um, I launched what we called an anti-fee model, which was based on an hourly rate. So the company was going to pay me for the work that I did, um, but I was going to guarantee that it would be less than a contingency fee, and I was only going to sell to human resources. So I was going to kind of go in the front door um, and sell in the front door and hope that my um, my math would work out to be true in that I had crunched the numbers to try to see, you know, what was an average fee? An average fee in 2007 contingency was $38,000. And on average, it took between 80 and 200 hours to make that placement. So clients were really paying between three and $600 an hour for that work. A client would never pay that if they knew that's what it was costing them hourly. But yet every time they pay a contingency fee, that's what they pay. So I knew I had margin. So I priced our model at $110 an hour and went to market with the anti-fee model. And it took off. I mean, we had four employees in 2009 and we have, you know, close to 90, um, today with an office in Switzerland. Um, and it's hockey stick growth based on the, the model change in that this is a more collaborative approach. Um, it feels good to work with our clients. Now we're not going behind anyone's back to do it. Um, and we're charging a fair fee, um, not an exorbitant fee. And when they write those checks to us over time, they feel like they're getting a good value for what we're doing for them. Yeah. Uh, now what's that, what's it called when, um, you hire a recruiter when it's not contingent, but you're just using them for the recruiting. In other words, they're, they're your sole provider. Oh, an RPO model <clears throat> where you actually um, sort of take on all of the human resources responsibilities. Um, you'll have uh, sort of issued company issued computers, you're setting up all the scheduling, you're actually making the offers within their system. Um, We've now grown so large that we do do that for several clients. Um, And we offer, what I really love about what we do is we sort of um, changed our model a little bit to to provide a, what we call a small business platform. Um, one of the things that I, I think is unfortunate in science is a lot of the smaller firms get really boxed out of top talent because they can't really afford to pay these large exorbitant recruiting fees. Um, yet they have unique needs um, and every hire is so important. So we offer a small business platform that we price um, lower. Um, we offer it to companies that are under 200. We've got many companies that have 10, 12 employees and we really help them do everything. So we will sit on site with them. We'll run their weekly meetings, their talent meetings. We'll write their job descriptions. We review all their resumes that come in online. So we do we provide a lot of services to them um, because they just can't scale that fast and they don't have um, the bandwidth to be able to manage it nor the cash um, to throw at it. So we provide them with a lower cost solution um, that's, I think, broader than what other recruiters would do. Now, for uh, clients that pay in the contingency way, they could have multiple recruiters uh, working on that job. In your case, where you're charging an hourly rate, I assume that that client is just 
decided to hire you to fill that role because exactly. they're okay. Yeah. And yeah. in that way it's, um, it has, it has the feeling of retained search, right? Cause a retained search, a client would pay us upfront amount of cash and then we would have exclusive rights to it. Um, we don't require exclusivity. Um, but the one thing that I will say about having multiple contingency recruiters work on it is you really don't necessarily benefit by doing that. The market is small. I mean, these are niche, especially in the industries that we work in. There's only so many pharmacovigilance people out there in Boston, you know? And so if you've got 16 people that are calling all the same people, um, you really, I think, lessen um, the, the, the integrity of the search by doing that. And um, we we contact hundreds of people um, for each of these searches. So we'll find them. Um, we don't need anyone else's help, basically. We're, we're gonna, if they're doing pharmacovigilance in Boston, for example, we're going to talk to them about this job that you have. Um, so it, it, I, we don't see that there's any downside, right, to sort of giving them the exclusivity. Um, and we're beating market, too. So average placement time in biopharmaceuticals is, I think, 96 days. And our average time to fill is 67 days. Wow. Well, somewhere along the way, you actually uh, took on uh, private equity took on a partner in your business. And I know uh, mission and culture is so important to you, not always something that we think uh, aligns with the business model of a private equity firm. But uh, what led up to that and how's that going? Yeah. So um, I think what happened with Pharmalogics is uh, you know, a story of very typical, maybe not typical, but atypical growth um, and, uh, and scale and operational challenges to go from four people to 90 um, um, was not, you know, as anyone would imagine, not an easy transition. But what happened was we became more profitable. And um, and we didn't really necessarily know how to turn that profitability into growth capital. Um, and so one of the things we had never done is leverage debt. And, and I kind of knew that to get to the next level, we really needed to leverage debt and, um, and start to be investing in things like business development. So for example, we never did business development because we could never do it long enough to be able to keep up with the work. So we might have someone do business development for three months, but then we'd have to take six months off because we had, we couldn't manage all of the work. Um, so it, what really wasn't until 2016 that we established a person full time in a business development role. And we knew that that was going to be a problem for our future growth in order for us to develop and, and sort of grow internationally. We really needed a sales team and we needed to invest in that. So that was kind of the impetus for thinking about leveraging, um, debt. And we looked at a variety of different options and I knew that private equity had like this stigma that, you know, you, it's a sellout, especially for a company that, you know, like you said, really values company culture, um, and, uh, values, you know, I always say like em employees are just your biggest asset um, and they, they take the most amount of your time and energy and work, but they're your, you know, they're your biggest asset, especially in the human capital business like Pharmalogics. So I was, you know, really concerned about private equity being something that could work for us. Um, and, and yet I decided to hire um, an investment banking firm to see if we could find a private equity partner that would be aligned with our approach to growth and development um, and culture. 
And so we didn't go through a traditional broad process where we send out a book about ourselves to 300 people. Um, essentially what happened is our private inv uh, our investment banking firm sort of identified a couple people that they thought um, might be interested in a business like ours and maintaining um, the existing structure and the way we approached business from a cultural perspective. So we met with a couple of them and I wasn't sure where it was going to end up going and out of that three management meetings that we did, uh, they came in during a week, we ended up with two offers. The following day. Um, and it was funny because it's like putting, it's like thinking about putting your house on the market and then having three people come on Sunday and give you three offers. You know, it was a little bit like, oh, geez, are we really going to do this? Um, but I felt really strongly that, um, that the person, the people that we met really did align with what we were trying to do. Um, and one in particular, uh, the company that we ended up closing with Webster Capital, um, had some really cool brands. They owned Sundance, they owned Hudson jeans. Um, they just had a sort of a unique, and that was on their consumer side. Um, they had a healthcare and a consumer side. We were working with their healthcare business, but just in general, they had sort of like a fun, um, portfolio of companies. And I really liked the people a lot. I felt really, they were very genuine in not only um, uh, are their interest in our business, but also their interest in the kind of company we had grown to become. And so we decided to close with them in the end of, uh, actually it was the beginning of 2017. So we closed uh, January 31st of 2017 um, with Webster. We sold 80, 75% of the company. Um, the remaining 25% is owned by um, some of the previous existing owners who are current employees. And then we actually gifted equity. Uh, we reserved 10% to give to our, our current, well, it's, it was, it, at the time it was future employees, but we've actually doled that out now. So we have 17 additional partners in the organization. Nice. Nice. Yeah. And uh, has the culture been able to maintain or be enhanced even in that scenario? Yeah. You know, I mean, I think what, one of the things about private equity, I'll tell people, and I, um, I would, I would love to be invited to talk about private equity, particularly because there's not very many women who go through that process. Um, I think it's, uh, I give a sort of a, maybe a different perspective on it, but one of the things about private equity and, and, um, how to avoid kind of, I think of the bad story, um, or like the loss of your soul is to just be really upfront with what your expectations are, you know? So I made it very clear that these things were really important to Pharmalogics and that I wouldn't be willing to sell the company unless the person buying the company also felt that these three things were really important. Um, and so I think it's just about making sure you're really upfront and honest with your approach, what's important to you as a business owner, what you want to see continue. And if they don't like that, then that's fine. They can not make an offer in your company. And if they do like that, then they will. And, and it's very rare that people go back on their word. I think what happens more often is that business owners aren't clear up front about their expectations. So nothing really changed, quite frankly. Um, I mean, things did change, obviously. Uh, we invested heavily in business development. Our business development team went from two to its existing state now a year and a half later of like nine people. Um, and we have uh, sort of developed a more regional approach to that. We now have our first employee in France selling to Europe, um, someone in California, North Carolina. Um, uh, we've devoted a lot more energy into um, training and development, which was nice. And that complements our culture anyway. But all of the sort of things that we used to do, we still do. Um, and culture and people's happiness um, is really still the number one driver here. I mean, that's that's what we're getting up every day to do is provide an opportunity where people are happy to come to work, happy to deliver and work hard for you. And likewise, um, feel really good about it and, you know, smile on their way out as they are leaving. That's right. You know, uh, that's a great 
a great story to reflect on and how you were able to go through that process and find a, a wonderful partner that respected and wanted to enhance the culture. I remember going through that years ago when I, after not having any outside capital in the business, uh, did go through the more traditional model with the, the banker and put the book out and we ended up with 16 offers. But you're right, it's just like selling your house and and having a lot of people pay over market or whatever and deciding who that partner is. And ultimately, I didn't pull the trigger because I was too worried about that. I just worried that the, what, what we had built wouldn't, uh, wouldn't survive in terms of the culture. And, and uh, uh, it's not to say there's anything wrong with the business model. It just wasn't compatible, I guess, for what we were trying to do. And so when I hear those success stories, and we know they're out there, it's just a lot more fun in some cases to talk about the ones that don't work out. But when you find a great partner like like you did, and and it's giving you the ability to grow the way you want to grow and impact more lives and more companies. That's a really positive outcome. And so much has really happened for you, Megan, in, in a relatively short amount of time. You were 28 when you started your business in 2003. Let me take you back a little bit to kind of when you grew up and um, uh, tell me about your, your folks and some of the early influences that developed some of your leadership capabilities. Um. Yeah, I think one of the sort of biggest uh, things that I guess sort of shaped who I was was that we didn't come from a lot of money. Um, my parents never went to four-year colleges. Um, my mom stayed at home. My dad was like an engineer, kind of at like a, he worked for P&G actually making detergent, laundry detergent. Um, and so we didn't have the, I never grew up with a, a sense that money was really an important factor or something um, that should be coveted so closely. I, I just didn't have that growing up. I remember we didn't go on vacation. We didn't go out to dinner. Um, my parents ended up buying a, um, a house they probably couldn't afford in a really good school district. And I remember we ate, I think we ate mac and cheese like four times a week, like on a very, for like a year or two. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and which was fine. And I don't remember there being anything wrong with that. Like I, you know, I never wanted for anything I really needed. Um, but yet we didn't have everything we wanted, you know? Yeah. Um, and so I think that that's been a really, uh, important shaper for me as a business owner, because it isn't always about, the profitability. It's not all about EBITDA. Um, and I know that EBITDA is important now and I'm focused on it because I have to be to participate with my private equity partner successfully. Um, but there's also a balance to that and it is about the people and it's about your happiness and it's about what, what gets you up in the morning and, and it's about what you give to other others really, I think. And so, um, I think that was a, a, a shaping influence uh, in my life growing up. My dad was always a very hard worker, um, and, uh, very willing to do anything for you. Um, and so that's kind of how I I think I am. I would give you the shirt off my back if I knew you needed it or wanted it or had a reason to have it. <laughs> um, and so that's kind of what shaped me as a leader. I tried to every day think about how can I leave this conversation with this person feeling better off for having it with me? Um, how can I enhance um, this process and add my best self to it? Um, and, you know, I'm not perfect, obviously. Uh, and I I would never say I was, but, um, I do try every day to give to others and make sure that, um, they're getting something really good out of me ultimately. Yeah. What about any early jobs? Anything, any influences there as you got started, uh, just even working early on during school, et cetera? 
Yeah. So I always worked um, through high school. And interestingly enough, I think I knew early on that I should be my own boss because I think I was a terrible employee. My dad owned, um, my dad ended up leaving um, his engineering job and he bought a video store in town where we grew up. And so I worked for my dad um, all through high school and he almost fired me like 50 times, I think. (laughs) And then I had a job in college that I was really good at, but I was very unreliable. And so my boss would always say on my recommendation, like, would you rehire her? And he would say, yes, grudgingly. (laughs) (laughs) And so, you know, I think I, I sort of always marched to my own tune a little bit in that way. Um, and I always colored outside the lines a little bit. Um, and I did find that, um, to be hard in my first job as a recruiter, I felt as though I wanted to grow and develop and hire people. And I wanted to build his business. And he was, the owner was not interested in having me do that. And I couldn't understand why. And, you know, at the time I was, what did I know? I was like 23, 24 years old. Um, but I felt like I knew everything. And I think growing up feeling like you think, you know, everything is sort of like a budding entrepreneur because no one's ever going, you're never going to really listen to what someone else is telling you to do. That's right. And so then you just finally go your own way and look what, look what happened. Way. Yeah. Yeah. And you have to, and you know, what's really, it's really humbling experience because then you really, you realize very quickly that you do not know everything and every mistake is so painful. Um, every failure is so hard because you can't imagine having ever failed at anything because you always know that you're right. So it was a very humbling experience. It was something that I definitely needed to do and I've become a much different person because of it. Yeah. Um, so I'm happy for that. Along the way, can you think of an, an unexpected learning from an unexpected source? Yeah. I mean, I would say, um, you know, it's not been easy, I think to, one, and one of the things that I think is really hard, especially for me as, as a mom, um, was being able to manage through the growth period of my company while I was also starting a family. And um, I had a really like very hard experience early on. It was, so we might, maybe were like two years into business. I had maybe four or five employees, probably that was it. We were running very contingency traditional recruitment firm. And, um, I had just had my first child. So I was on maternity leave. I think she was probably five weeks old or so. She's 13 now. Um, and two of the, we hired two friends. They were friends before they joined the firm and two friends, uh, on a Monday morning, basically downloaded our entire database and set up a competing recruitment firm. Mm. And it was like, so hard to come back from that because I felt, you know, these two people had joined a year before they had earned like over a hundred thousand dollars in their first year and they were making tons of money and were so greedy and felt so wrong. And I felt so upset about it. It was such like a horrible experience. We sued them in federal court and ended up spending $175,000 on a lawyer and getting $200,000 from them. So it was like, what was the point? (laughs) Um, and all the while I had this newborn baby at, at home that, you know, I really at the time could only give half my attention to, because really I was so, we're still trying to like rebound from this loss of our two, you know, practically half our, our staff. Um, grow the business, have a baby, go to federal court. And, and it was in Pennsylvania because we were a Pennsylvania-based company at the time. So um, that was um, the worst and best experience of my of my career. Um, worst, obviously, because it was so painful, but the best because what I learned in that is that, um, well, litigation is, is stupid. <laughs> I 
never, never, like never get into a lawsuit with anybody uh, if you can avoid it. And I haven't ever been in one since I can say, thankfully. Mm-hmm. Um, and then secondly, just that, you know, you can persevere through all of these things that you can pull yourself up by your bootstraps and focus on succeeding and success and doing the right thing. And, um, although it was really, really hard. And I think as a mom too, because I was really conflicted at the time, like maybe I should just stay home and take care of this baby because this business thing isn't working for me. Mm. Um, but what I learned is that you can do both and that you can persevere and nothing has ever seemed harder than that was. So it was like all the other struggles that we were going to go on to have um, over time um, never were nearly as bad as that one. Yeah. So- what an important experience for you to go through and, and uh, uh, learn from. Um, you know, in your in more recent years, you've become very focused on this idea of women in business, women in leadership positions. It, it, did it kind of come from your personal experience there or how has that developed? Yeah. I mean, I what it done to me. So we're um, I, I'm. We're basically on the Inc. 5000 list for the last five years, so we will be a 2018 recipient again. Um, so the first year, which was five years ago, I went to the conference, and um, I remember sitting there at the award ceremony, and they were talking about how, I think it was at the time, maybe 13.7% of the Inc. 5000 list were female CEOs, and they were talking about how that number, they were sort of celebrating that the number was 0.5% higher than the last year. And at the dinner, I remember at the dinner, I was by myself. I went by myself. I don't know why I went by myself, but Mm -hmm. I did go by myself. I remember sitting at the dinner on the back of a napkin and like doing the math out. And if at that rate, women would be half of the Inc. 5000 in the year, like two, you know, 2300, you know what I mean? (laughs) It was just an absurd situation. And I thought like, how sad that we're celebrating 0.5% growth of women on the Inc. 5000 list. Like that's pathetic. Um, that was a really big turning point for me five years ago when I just decided that, you know, if there was anything that I could do to shine light on that, if there was anything that I could do to further women's empowerment or women in leadership, that that's what I was going to do. So like, if you look back on our Facebook pages or or any of our social media, we pretty much only exclusively talk about women doing great things. Um, pay parity has become a huge, um, issue for me. Um, I launched a wage transparency website, um, wagetransparency.org. I have also run a website, doitforyourdaughters.org too. Um, just talking about, um, how pay equality is, is one of the biggest, uh, issues that we face as women and leaders. Um, and we are devaluing our female contribution and the only way to combat that is to pay women fairly and equally based on the position that they're in. Um, and the statistics are sad and they don't change very much in Boston, you know, which you would consider to be kind of like a liberal leader in this regard. Um, white women still earn only 76 cents on the white man's dollar and, um, black women are, you know, I think at 50 something percent, 50 cents, 50 cents, maybe it's, maybe it's 60 cents. Latinos are at 52 cents on the dollar. Um, really pathetic, um, for the same work. So that's something that I've become really passionate about, um, and, uh, and something that I speak about often and want to further that cause. If there's anything I can do, we actually, 
Um, also, are completely transparent in our pay here at Pharmalogix. So we publish our pay rates, or we publish our salaries. Um, so everybody knows that if John and Melissa are both project managers, John and Melissa both earn whatever the amount of money is. Um, there's no difference between, and whether or not they're a Latino or not doesn't matter. It's just is what it is. If you're a project manager, this is how much you earn, regardless of who you are that's taking that job. Um, and I'm really encouraging other businesses to follow that suit in terms of uh, transparency and pay because it's the only way we're going to fix it. Um, and I wrote a, an op-ed about it recently um, because I, th I feel like, you know, the other thing that's happened in t over time is we've, um, we've made it a, a bad thing to talk about pay internally. Really, that only propagates men earning more money. I mean, that's that's really the only thing it does. By not talking about our pay internally, we're just keeping that system in place. Because my feeling is if Sean and Melissa, you know, are to keep the, this sort of going forward, if Sean and Melissa both know that Sean is earning $20,000 more than Melissa, that's not only going to bother Melissa, it's going to bother Sean. Um, and I feel like collectively we can make a change um, if we sort of shed light on it. And so that's that's kind of what I focused on in the last couple of years and what I'll continue to focus on um, well, forever, probably. <laughs> yeah. Well, congrats on um, taking a stand. And that's just so, so helpful and so needed. And like you said, you know, a long term process. So um, thank you for taking a leadership role in that idea of women in leadership, transparency, uh, pay quality. How does that impact your business uh, directly um, besides being how you uh, are really a thought leader in that area? Well, we have over 60% of our staff is female, and that's kind of by accident, um, honestly. Um, but one of the things that we we recognize at Pharmalogix, um, the, the way we run recruitment allows us to hire really young people. So we can hire someone right out of school and have them on the phones talking to somebody in quality assurance three weeks later. Um, so a lot of our staff is under 25. I think our average age in our office is only 27. Um, so it's a millennial, very millennial focused, but very young staff. Um, we do have a higher turnover rate because when you're hiring someone out of school, they may think they want to do sales or recruitment and then find out they really don't know what they want to do or they're not good at it. And so they move on. Um, and so we, we, we do with a lot of young people. And so one of the things that I know in taking this stand happens is that both for men and women and of, you know, whatever, whatever race you are, um, that we're talking about these issues and we're speaking about them in a way, um, that gets people to think about them differently. And so we're touching a lot of young lives, um, and speaking to them about things that are important in business for them to know. And I think it will shape the way they approach their careers and the leadership roles that they have in their future, like forever, you know? So I almost feel like we're sending off even, you know, and even when people leave here after, you know, six months, they decide this isn't the job. They usually, we all, we're all hugging, you know, because we, uh, we've created sort of a family unit. Um, and it is a very familial kind of feeling when you work at Pharmalogics, but I know that they're going to go off and for, you know, the next 40 years that they're giving back and working, um, in business that their, their values started here, which was, we're all equal. We're all worthy. No one here is more important than anyone else, and no one's contribution is greater than anyone else's. And I feel like that's a really um, fantastic opportunity for us. Um, and I, you know, I always say like, I hope I'm hope someone finds me like if I'm getting like carted around in my little wheelchair, and I hope someone comes up to me and says, Hey, you know, I hired. 
two people on my board, two women on my board this year at my company um, because of what started for me when I worked for you 25 years ago. Like I, that would be like a dream come true for me, you know? Yeah. Um, so that's the impact that I think we're having, and I think it's broad, and I think it's great, and I, um, and I, I, I see that responsibility. I take that responsibility very seriously. It's such a, a wonderful feeling to have when you've impacted people in that way, and, and you're not even apologizing for having a higher attrition. It's, it's actually good. It's important. It's good for your company because you continue to bring in new and fresh talent, but uh, I always used to say that uh, if I could just uh, – feel like we had an impact on the person that worked with us, no matter how long they worked with us long term, then I felt like I was contributing. And it sounds like that's exactly what you're doing. Uh, I have no doubt that you'll, uh, you're probably already getting those kind of comments from people that worked with you a number of years ago, and you'll get those for a long, a long time to come. As you think about uh, the company today, Megan, and uh, so much has changed, so much has evolved. Now you're a year or so into working with a private equity firm as well. What would you say is uh, your biggest current challenge? Um, I would say growth um, is, you know, uh, grow, organic growth based on referral-based business is very different than uh, what I call like bot growth in that we have people out there selling our business. And um, the institutional knowledge that exists from a referred bit client is so different than one that has only interacted with us maybe for an hour of presentation and then maybe an hour kickoff call. And so those new clients are coming to Pharmalogics without the background and history of and a recommendation by someone else who says we're great. And that is really hard to manage. I'm finding that those clients need a lot more sort of education and support as they're kind of onboarding to our model and what we do and how we do it differently. And so that's created a, definitely a current struggle for us because the amount of new clients that are coming in is so fast because we have so many people out there selling. Um, and so it's managing a lot of new clients all at once and, and having them all have equally a fantastic experience with Pharmalogics on their first try. And so that's hard. And I think that's going to be very, very difficult for us um, as we move forward in the next year and a half. Um, and something that I'm really focused on making sure that operationally we're delivering the same level of service and an additional level of, um, of sort of teaching um, to those clients so that they on board with us successfully. Because historically, 95% of our clients repeat with us every single year. And that's, you know, that's, that's a great number. Um, but again, those are all organically grown clients and those that have been referred to us by clients who love us. So now it's about, can we maintain 95% with a whole new crop of new clients? Um, and that's going to be a struggle for us that I know I have to focus on. Well, yeah, I mean, that's a struggle for any company. Think about it. You went from uh, one or two outside people selling to now nine. And uh, um, obviously, the business is growing at a great rate. So maintaining that same level of quality and consistency is really a, a huge challenge. If you think personally, Megan, about what you'd like to improve upon in terms of your own leadership skills, what would that be? One of the things that I think, um, I've, you know, people always say this, I think in your mid-40s, you um, sort of start to care a little less what people think and lead a little hmm. bit more with your heart as opposed to your head. Um, and so I, I will say that it is, it is a struggle for me to um, continue as a CEO uh, 
I'm sort of evolving in another way than the company probably needs to go. Um, so I've discussed with our private equity firm that, you know, because we'll probably be sold again in the next two to three years. So I've told them that I won't be going on with them in the next two to three years, that my heart's leaving me someplace else. And um, so it'll be, a, and I think it's a really good opportunity for Pharmalogics to take another step in business too. You know, I didn't get an MBA. Um, I didn't even know what EBITDA was in 2015. So, I, you know, this has been an education for me personally. Um, and I'm finding that my, like I said, my heart is going in a different direction. Um, and so, um, that's kind of what I'm looking forward to. I want to give Pharmalogics my best while I'm here for the next couple of years, get it into a place, a really great place to accept a new leader, um, and then go on and, and, and challenge myself in a new and different way. That's right. Um, there's a, I, I can tell there's a couple more gears left in you, so you've got a long way to go. Um, if you were thinking, Megan, about uh, somebody that's younger, uh, maybe even somebody on your team, that mid-20s person who's just starting out in their career, what kind of advice would you give them? I say this all the time, and um, I don't know, I'll take the swear word out of it, but um, successful people do stuff that they don't want to do. <laughs> and I said I was going to put this on my wall. We have a, we're actually breaking through to some new office space, and I'm going to, we have um, some graffiti on a wall, and I'm going to graffiti that that statement on the wall. Um, and I mean it in like in a funny way, but also in a very serious way. Very successful people can look back on their lives and see year longer parts of their lifetime that they've spent maybe doing things that they just didn't want to do, but felt that they had to in order to launch the company, deal with the client, even personally, you know, dealing with people that are, you know, might be in your life, friends, friendship, changing friendships, changing familial relationships. Um, life is not, it, it's all about that challenge. It's all about those really difficult um, parts of your life that are going to make you stronger and better. And successful people work through those. They don't run away from them. They don't quit on those. And so that's what I tell all of my 20-year-olds. And in fact, um, when I meet with them, I say exactly what you said to them. I tell every person that works here, my job is to make sure that when you leave here, whenever that is, that you're grateful for being here and that we've given you something that you can take with you that will make your life better. Um, and if we do that, then we've done, I've done, the, I've done a good job. And then secondly, I tell them that I really hope that working at Pharmalogics provides them with some challenges that they can overcome because resilience isn't built from just success. Resilience is built from failing at something and seeing success after. And in order to do that, you're going to have to do things that you don't want to do. Um, and in doing those things that you don't want to do, you'll realize the benefit of that work of working hard. Yeah. So that's what I tell all my young people. Uh, great. Those are great lessons. And, and the best part about that, that I think some people don't realize is uh, because when we look back and we can tell these stories about uh, doing that stuff that we didn't really want to do, people will say, God, I can't believe that, uh, you know, my business was a 24-hour business and my brothers and I slept on a cot every night waiting for calls to come in. And, you know, you kind of think about these early struggles. But what I tell people is that, it wasn't that bad. Yeah, you end up doing things you didn't want to do, but you don't even think about it when you're going through them. You just do them. And uh, you can look back and go, wow, that was that maybe took a lot of effort or resilience, but uh, you just kind of go with it. And uh, and that's being open to those challenges is really what makes you ultimately successful. 
Um, and Megan, your, your story is really incredible. And, and, uh, and I have a feeling is just beginning. I kind of want to conclude with these five quick hit questions, like the association game, and maybe just tell me the first thing that comes to your mind. And then I'm going to share some of the things I learned from talking to you today. Um, name a leader that you look up to. Uh, probably most people don't consider this person a leader, but, um, Wayne Dyer, I don't know if you're familiar with him, but, yes. um, been very important in my life. Great thought leader. How about a great book that influenced your leadership style? Well, I'm going to also refer to him again because um, my favorite is um, The Power of Intention. That's a great one. Uh, Do you have an all-time favorite movie? I do. Anne of Green Gables. Ah. How about a a, a TV series you like to binge watch? Oh my God. I don't even want to admit this. This is so bad. Oh God. 16 and Pregnant on MTV. Oh, we'll allow that. Um, I can't uh, believe I admitted it on uh, online. That's terrible. And uh, and lastly, what is something about you that many people don't know? Um, that I spend a, a large, probably what most people would consider a very large amount of time in uh, quiet meditation. Good for you. How long have you been doing that? Um, my dad passed away of, uh, of stage four brain cancer in 2012. And I went to Brazil and asked John of God for a miracle. And out of that experience, and I'm writing a book about it actually, but um, out of that experience, uh, I learned that my dad's cancer was his greatest gift to me because I would never have gone to Brazil if he was just like had lung cancer or something, you know, I had to be really bad. Um, and I basically was given this gift of sort of connection, spiritual connection and, uh, a love and need to, uh, be in quiet meditation. And so it's really been since 2012. Oh, that's wonderful. Yeah. Probably a couple years ago, I got into meditation a little bit as well. So, uh, I have a, a, a pretty good practice that's meant so much to me, um, along the way. Um, well, good, good. It's just wonderful lessons and, um, incredible story you have, Megan. Let me, let me kind of go back to a couple of things that I learned. Um, one of the things you started out with to, which I think is something that people overlook, uh, when you said that your recruiting firm focused only on life sciences, although you've been given opportunities to go beyond into other industries, obviously every industry has to hire people and you could really expand it. And that's to stay in your lane, uh, to focus on what you can be the best in the world at, uh, resist the attempt to to diversify too much or certainly too soon and when you can specialize at something and be wonderful at it uh, that's where you're going to really make an impact and you were been able to do that too and have this wonderful feeling by working only with companies that are changing lives themselves so you've got great stories to tell uh, the idea of taking opportunities and advantage of those opportunities that open up for you where that uh, company supported you to go work for them go through your non-compete and then kind of funded you to, to get started in your own business. Uh, you've taken opportunities and you, and you really jumped on them. And yet you've had a lot of courage along the way. It didn't just walk into open doors. When you saw after the recession that that business model wasn't working, you, uh, you changed to the anti-fee model and that's grown your business today. And, and uh, I think launched a lot of this transparency uh, philosophy in the way you do business. Uh, You're a great story of how private equity can work to allow you to continue to grow the culture and scale the business at the same time. And they don't have to be mutually exclusive. Uh, Kind of the lesson from your dad, uh, just working hard. You got to put your head down, work hard. And and, uh, there's nothing that's going to 
replace that and we don't have to come from money when we grew up many entrepreneurs didn't necessarily grow up with anything uh, but something we have in common which is maybe not a great quality is we, we have a hard time sometimes working for other people and that we realize uh, okay I may as well just sort of do it on do it on my own um, but going your own way uh, allowed you to at least up to now achieve um, your potential and and you'll continue to do that as you grow. Um, just the, the humbling experiences you've had is the one you realize you don't know everything. Uh, we all, you know, have some level of arrogance and think we can, you know, uh, save the world and early on. And then we realize we don't know everything. You get stuck, you know, having to sue your, the couple friends that you brought in the business and realize, God, that was kind of a waste of time. And so again, uh, lawsuits don't lead to much of anything except pain and heartache and empty wallets. And so, uh, realizing we're in the relationship business and to, to the extent that we can build on those relationships, that's going to lead us to growth. Um, that you've taken a stand in your life, uh, the stand around women in leadership, about pay equality, around transparency. Uh, it's really important, I think, for your own sake uh, to make you feel like you're contributing, but it's clearly impacted your business and your ability to grow and allows you to differentiate. And so companies and leaders that take a stand can differentiate themselves because especially in, in your industry, I mean, there's so many companies that could say that they do what you do or do it better or do it cheaper. Uh, so how do we differentiate? And you've done it a great way through that uh, thought leadership um, and realizing that to grow uh, is never easy. And while given the money and the resources to invest in your kind of non-organic growth, to build a sales team, to, to really scale, uh, is not easy. And to maintain the quality of the services that you provide uh, is something that will continue to be challenging for you. Um, and yet, you know, having had this uh, move to partner with private equity and, uh, and I'm sure benefit financially from that, uh, you're, you haven't settled. You, you're, you see that next gear in you. You already see that, that at some point you're going to do something else, whatever that something else is. And, and looking forward to that is, is really important. Uh, and lastly, the, the lesson that you share with your, your young people, employees, or people that you touch when you're out there speaking or educating is that uh, we all do stuff that we don't want to do along the way. It's it's just not easy, um, and uh, but it's okay, and it's okay, and that's what gives us the opportunities uh, that we have. And um, so congratulations, Megan, on all your success. And like I said, it's only so far. I think uh, actually the best is yet to come. Yeah, thank you. I feel very much the same way. <laughs> Well, thank you. And thank you all for joining me on this episode of the Growing With Purpose podcast. Until next time.